Welcome to part two of a four-part series called Sync Licensing Frequently Asked Questions. Before we get into today's podcast, just a quick reminder that the 90-Day Music Licensing Challenge is starting on Friday, October 1st. Today is September 28th. So if you're listening to this podcast prior to October 1st and you'd like to register for the 90-Day Music Licensing Challenge, which includes one-on-one coaching with me, 90 daily music licensing leads, uh, weekly lessons and assignments, and in-depth coaching and training, video tutorials, interviews, and much more, head over to htlympremium.com. That's H-T-L-Y-M, as in how to license your music, premium.com. Okay, in this first segment on today's episode, I'm speaking with TV and film composer Eddie Gray, and I'm asking him how composers and artists can get started in music licensing. This is a question I get asked a lot, so I thought I would pose the question to Eddie Gray, and this is what Eddie had to say. But I always use you, I don't know if you remember this, but in the podcast we did last year, you talked about like what the process was like when you started, like before you had all these projects that you were working on. Can you kind of (laughs) take, can you kind of take us back to that, to that period of time? Because I feel like that's really interesting too, because it's almost like there's two different challenges. Like there's the challenge of just getting started in this industry. And then there's the challenge of like keeping the momentum going once you've, once certain doors have opened. But I feel like maybe more people are sort of at the beginning, like they're just trying to break through. Can you kind of talk a little bit without rehashing everything we talked about? Can you talk a little bit about how you were able to get started initially? I will. I will. You know, one thing I want to point out to all the the up and uh, the up and comers is that, you know, this is not a sexy job. This mm-hmm. is not like, you know, a rock star position. Nobody knows you. You know, occasionally you have, you know, some, you know, some uh, perks, but this is, don't get confused with, you know, this gig. It is work. Like if you're interested in putting in serious hours and serious commitment, then, you know, I'll open the door for you. But this is not for the feeble. This is not for somebody that wants to just put in a few hours a week. This is definitely a full time and then some um, kind of gig, um, entrepreneurs, you know, you, you have to have that, that, that mindset and that heart, but just to kind of cover the roadmap a little bit, you know, since I, since I've been through it, I do feel that there are levels to this, to this game. And the first level is simply, you know, getting your foot, uh, or at least your toe in the door, you know, like getting a few placements, um, uh, acquiring a couple of publishers, um, you know, um, maybe racking in a couple of big sinks. You know, you, you have to identify yourself as a player in the game. If you don't have any, uh, uh, you know, um, notches in your belt or, or, you know, you, you need some creds and, and that mm-hmm. way you can kind of start to build your portfolio. And once you have a portfolio, you can start, you know, acquiring bigger clients and reaching out to people like CBS and reaching out to, to your 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 bigger names out there because no one's going to listen to you if you don't have any credibility and that really is the the roadmap you know when I first started um, my my goal was to saturate the business okay and I didn't want to become you know um, for a lack of a better phrase like you know a slut of the business I just wanted to to basically have a relationship with different people so to this day 
certain publishers, certain clients know me as the guy that does X. Like mm-hmm. I have clients who think I just write Latin music or I have clients who think I just write, you know, quirky music or, or romantic comedy music. And that's fine with me. I just wanted to build relationships. Uh, there are people who will, you know, advise you not to do this. But for me, I, you know, I, I needed to get, I needed something to bite and I wanted a way in. And so, you know, um, <clears throat> by any means necessary, I, I think everybody's different in, in their approach, but this really worked out for me. I saturated the business. I, I pretty much, you know, got in contact with everyone that's, that, that's out there. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, at one point, I think I must've had a hundred different relationships with like, you know, licensing companies, music houses, and that I was doing various gigs and calls for, for various people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you start, you know, raising up your, your, your music production, which, which that's, a, that's the other part of it, right? I mean, it's not just the music business. It's also the, the product that you're providing. And if these two worlds don't find themselves and, and grow, you know, continuously together, then it's going to fall apart because if you acquire bigger clients, you know, such as A&E or, or what have you, and, and the music is not up to par, then, then you're going to fall. But if your music's really good and you have no contacts, well, then what's the use of that anyway, right? Okay, in this next segment, I'm speaking to composer Anthony Clint Jr., and I'm asking Anthony sort of a similar question to the question that I asked Eddie. Uh, the question I'm asking Anthony is how long does it take to get started in music licensing? This is another question that I, I get asked a lot. Of course, there's no one size fits all answer. Every story is a little bit different. But with that said, uh, most composers that I know that are working professionally full-time in music licensing, their stories are actually pretty similar. And the way Anthony answered this question is a, a pretty typical answer for this question. So let's hear what Anthony had to say. But I feel like in terms of licensing, one of the key things you said in this podcast so far is that you have a catalog of like 500 tracks. You have a really large catalog. I know Eddie Gray, the other, you know, another composer I work with a mm-hmm. lot has a thousand plus tracks and growing. You need a lot of tracks right. for this to make sense, you know, to turn it into something really substantial. And I work with a, a lot of writers that I do consulting with. I, I did a consultation with someone earlier today and he's like, I have one fully produced track ready to go. And he's like, is that enough? And I'm like, no, you need to really build this up to something substantial for it to become something substantial. But let me ask you this question. Um, In the beginning, Anthony, when you were first starting out, how long did it take you until you really started to see things pay off? Uh, it It was a good... Well, it was a good year before I realized something got placed, but there later, like a year and a half, two years later, I found out that um, a track had actually got placed um, soon after I had signed with uh, with the library out in L.A. Um, but of course, I didn't I didn't see it on my royalty statement until like a long time from from then. Um, but yeah, so that that one was rather quick, but I didn't know anything about it. Then when I got paid for it, it was it was like 47 cent or something like that. Uh so yeah, I mean, man, it to, to see significant money, it was it was a good a good 2 years. Yeah, it takes time, and that's one of the really kind of frustrating and weird things about this business is that a lot of times you don't actually find out about your placements until much later after the fact, you know, three to six months in, in some cases. And I've had moments, you know, of 
real frustration where, where I've really been down about my music career and the music I'm making at times. Mm-hmm. And unbeknownst to me, at that very moment, those very periods of frustration, right. I actually had music that was being placed. I just didn't know about it. And it would be, it's just a weird aspect of this industry. <laughs> I mean, it would be really nice yeah. if you would get a phone call or, or something. Or, I mean, sometimes people do notify you, but a lot of times people don't. And it's just, you, you know, you, you really have to look at this as a long term endeavor, I guess. But what were you doing? In the beginning, you said it took a couple of years before this really turned into a substantial revenue stream. How were you supporting your, yourself in the very beginning? So, so I'm a musician as well. So, um, I was I was playing for a church, and that's kind of how I made made my income on on Sundays. Um, so that was that was my income that really held me over um, through until you know music licensing started making up a significant income, and then um, working with independent artists, I had. Um, a couple artists where we were <clears throat> consistently working on their projects. Um, so that kept income flowing in. Um, and now, you know, now since I really focused on the music licensing aspect, now I really want that to be um, the majority of of my income, which which it, it now is. I'm not exactly where I want to be yet. I'm, I set um, set me a little plan up to, to get where I want to get. But um, yeah, that's, that's what I was doing, you know, while, you know, just waiting for things to grow on the music licensing end. Yeah. I think that's a, r- a real tricky thing for a lot of musicians that are pursuing this is that they're looking to make mm. money from their music right away, but it just, it tends to take time. It doesn't tend to happen right away. You, you really doesn't. have to, to be patient in this industry. Okay. In the next, uh, segment, I'm speaking with artist Chuck Hughes from the band, the Hillbilly Hellcats. And I'm speaking with Chuck about the topic of the importance of having a niche when it comes to music licensing. And Chuck has a really interesting story in that Chuck has licensed an incredible amount of music with a really, or I I should say a relatively small catalog. I think the last time that I spoke with Chuck, which was maybe a year or so ago, his catalog only consisted of about 45 songs. And with those 45 songs, he's had over 3,500 different placements to date or again, at least the last time I spoke with him, it's probably even more now. But this is what Chuck had to say about the importance of having a niche in music licensing. You're licensing a lot of music with a relatively small catalog, and what I'm what I'm wondering, what I'm thinking about you, Chuck, is we should mention that you're stylistically you're doing like rockabilly music. So I'm wondering if, in your case, a lot of your success, I mean, obviously what you do, you do really well, but it's also sort of a unique style. You know, there's not a ton of people doing it, and and I'm just kind of wondering if licensing-wise, when somebody is looking for rockabilly stuff, you're kind of one of the go-to people because you do it so well. Well, I would have to say, in all modesty, yes, I I think so. But uh, here's another consideration. Um, you know, when you say rockabilly, there's three phases. There was the original 50s era, there was an 80s revival, and then there is the post-2000s um, rockabilly slash psychabilly people. Uh, and and we have a foot in a, and songs sound like they're from each one. We yeah. were pretty quick to um, embrace, to, to start... Um, doing song licensing, a lot of a lot of rockabilly performers were not uh, 
drawn to technology. And you'll find a lot of them right now never abandon vinyl records. They don't use Spotify. They don't mm. listen to streaming. And, um, and so maybe the fact that we adopted technology further on made us, uh, you know, able to, to be searchable, um, to be found in libraries versus, you know, if you're an electronica artist, you know, electronica people are totally right on up to date with uh, modern mediums. And so they're going to have more competition. But yes, uh, the fact that that I occupy a niche has helped me. I guess it helps and hurts. Uh, you know, it's an it's a relatively unpopular niche. But when you want that niche, a music licensor most likely is going to stumble on the hillbilly Hellcats when they're if they look in a few different libraries. We're going to come up really quickly and. Uh, then the only question is, do they like us or not? So, so yes, you could, you could kind of say that we own the niche. I've looked around. I like to, when I'm in a library, I like to search my own, my own name in the library. And I like to search rockabilly in the library and see what comes up to see how many entries of ours come up versus uh, other musicians. And generally in all the libraries we're very well represented. We, we come up more than any other act. So, so although Rockabilly is a small niche, when they find it, uh, when they look through it, they're liable to find us. Okay, in this next segment, I'm speaking with Michael Nieves from the music library Sugaroo. And I'm asking Michael, what kind of music are music libraries looking for? So this is another one of those questions I get a lot, which is something along the lines of, should I write specifically for what music libraries are looking for, or should I just write what I'm inspired to write? And what are music libraries typically looking for? So this is how Michael answered that question. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if, if I was an indie artist and I looked at the artist you represent already, I would be pretty intimidated. How important is it that the, the artists that come to you that you choose to represent? Like, what, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a pretty established artist or is it solely based on the music or a little, little bit of both? Well, I mean, it's. It's primarily based on the music, but it, it, we really come at it from, you know, a three-pronged criteria, we, you know, with the understanding that anything that we're going to take on um, has to be what we consider to be licensable. So, you know, there could be music that we may love personally, but if we don't really see a pathway to success for licensing it, it, it doesn't make sense for us. So that said, you know, kind of the three categories that we look at are either, you know, someone is a, is a name artist who's got recognition, um, where, you know, people will know them and they have licensable music. Um, you know, someone is coming to us who also has licensable music, but we feel like it's, you know, kind of a style of music that um, we don't really represent already or we don't have much of. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so for instance, you know, we're always looking for really good sample-free, you know, commercial-sounding hip-hop. You know, so if someone okay. came to us with that, that would be interesting to us. And then the third category you know, and this is very subjective, is just someone comes to us with something that we just think is so undeniably great and we can really see so many opportunities to license it that we would feel like idiots if we didn't take them on. So those are, you know, broadly spoken, our three categories of, of you know, kinds of music or artists we'd be looking for, you know, when someone comes to us that we would potentially sign. And, and interesting, and in terms of music that has that sort of X factor that you speak of, 
I, I know it's subjective, like you said, and it's probably hard to sort of define, but can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the characteristics? Like, what is it about songs and artists that that grab you? Is it compl- all over the map, or is there anything you can kind of point to for artists that are listening to this? No, it, it really is all over the map, and, and that, you know, sounds like a cop-out, but it's not, you know, I mean, because yeah. there's just such a broad range of music that, you know, the people that we pitch music to, you know, are looking for. Now, there are certain things that end up getting, you know, cyclical, you know, so every now and then there's a really hot artist or a hot style of music that suddenly everybody wants, you know, and, you know, a number of years ago it was, you know, Florence and the Machines, and, you know, and then we went through a period of time where it was like Black Keys, and so, you know, people were, you know, anytime someone came to us with music, you know, that was somewhat reminiscent of those, you know, with strong songs that we thought were licensable, like, oh, that kind of piqued our interest, but, you know, generally, um, you know, the, the music that we may be looking for that we think is has opportunities in episodic television could be pretty different than the music that we think has opportunities for it in, in advertising or theatrical trailers. So, you know, I mean, there are certain kinds of songs and certain kinds of artists who, whose music gets used pretty universally, you know, across the spectrum of the different, you know, uh, visual medias. But, you know, but generally... You know, when we're, when we're hearing something and we're considering it, it's it's like, oh, we could really hear this, you know, particular artist songs. You know, could be in a variety of different TV shows. You know, or wow, this really we could really pitch to the trailer house world. So, um, so it's less. It's really not about a style of music per se, as much as you know the, the songs and and how they resonate and um, and do we think we can find homes for them? Interesting. And do you think that the artists that are writing music that tends to work well for these different contexts, whether it's television or advertising, do do you feel like they're trying to write for those mediums or do you feel like they just happen to write songs that align themselves with with these different outlets? Well, I mean, that's a good question. You know, I, I think most artists, when they're sitting down to, you know, write songs or to write their next record, are just trying to create something that they find, you know, you know, artistically satisfying. Yeah. Um, you know, there are some of our artists, you know, who we're particularly close with, who, um, you know, will sometimes send us and say, hey, you know, I'm working on this and, you know, just want to know what you think. And so when we give, you know, artists feedback like that, you know, the, 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 the caveat we say initially is like, listen, our comments are not going to be what we think is, is the right thing artistically. Our comments are what we think, you know, can make it the most licensable from a sync perspective. Um, so, which is a different kind of commentary. Uh, and then, you know, and then similarly, we have people that, yeah, like really like, you know, they're in the studio and they're writing songs and they're like, Hey, you know, um, I also want to, you know, just write, you know, I know you've said to me, you know, you need songs that sound more like X, Y, or Z or that are about the following topic. So, you know, separate from the songs, my record, I've made a, you know, I wrote and recorded a couple others that I think you might find homes for licensing wise. And, so it's really kind of all over the map. I mean, I think most artists are creating music just to create something artistically satisfying, and they want to, you know, make the best record they can make, you know, while others will occasionally, you know, just try to create some songs that they think um, we can license. Okay, in the last segment on today's podcast, I'm speaking with Jason Moss from Los Angeles, and I'm asking him the question, do you need to live in a major music city like L.A. or New York or Nashville? to succeed in music licensing. Uh, Again, this is another fairly common question, and this is what Jason had to say. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I've actually had had some stuff 
picked up by Fox Sports recently as well. How much, I mean, obviously being in a place like L.A., like you said, you walk out the door and, and you're connected. Like you just, there's more chances to connect with people because they're there. But how much of the work that you're doing, and I'm just curious for a lot of the listeners out there because people listen to this all over the U.S. and even internationally, how important is it to, to physically be in a place like L.A.? Like how many of these spots that you're getting would you not have gotten had you not been there? Well, I feel like I never want to say you have to be someplace because I have a friend who is a incredibly successful, who's actually out of Phoenix. Um, he runs a record label and a big uh, music production catalog, and he was a mentor to me. And he's been incredibly successful on his terms uh, doing it out of the Phoenix market. And, uh, yeah. you know, um, I, I think, though, face-to-face, I mean, look, Email and texting and all that kind of stuff, it's very passive. Uh, these days, everybody's inundated music supervisors, you know, composers, catalogs. I think getting out there, you know, obviously picking up the phone is always really, you know, I support that. Um, but being, you know, people want to work with people they like and connect with. So if they meet sure. you and they like you and you're like, wow, this is a really cool dude and you're funny or you're charming or you got uh, just a good energy about yourself they're going to be more prone to want to work with you yeah you know like in anything um and so i think being on the ground uh does help but that's just not feasible for everybody and even being on the ground here you know after a while me being here 17 years you get a little lazy you know i still need to kick myself in the butt to get out and 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 be social you you get a little complacent i'm like yeah i don't really want the traffic or and you know all the all different excuses you have um so but definitely being in la changed my life it gave me the opportunities um and and you know it, it really did make the difference yeah that makes a lot of sense my my producers out there like i said i took my first trip in 2015 but it, it's it's definitely I, um i have this idea of potentially moving to la and that's why i'm asking you all these all these questions not just for my my listeners I'm asking for me as well, but but it it I guess one of the things that always concerns me is it's such an expensive area to to live in. How what's life like as a musician doing what you do, living in one of the most expensive cities in the U.S.? Does that balance out in in terms of you, the cost of living is more, but you make more because you're there? How how does that work out for you personally? Well, I, you know, when I was younger, I didn't care. You know, yeah. so I was like, I'll just charge everything on my credit card and I'm going to take the risk. And I, you know, and, and I didn't really have any responsibilities and I was just, you know, didn't have to eat fancy and, you know, live in a, a, a one bedroom or a studio. I think um, L.A., you know, you don't have to be in the middle of West Hollywood. Uh, you, you, there's plenty. I'm, I'm outside of L.A. proper. I'm in a, a city called Glendale, Eagle Rock. Um, yeah, it's expensive. Um, I mean, I, I feel like you have to just be committed depending on your situation and what you're able to, you know, your, your pain tolerance. So obviously just, you know, take that risk. Will LA make a difference? There's so many people doing music for film and TV now. Everybody has a studio in their bathroom. They can do amazing music. It's not a you know the 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 amount of music that's being um, that's flooding the market is like never before. Sure, there's more programming, there's more meetings for it, but the prices have literally been cut like you know less than half. 
Um, a lot of things are streaming where there's no royalties. The whole the whole industry has changed. When I first came in here to LA, I you know I made some crazy you know lottery money. I I got some lottery gigs, dream gigs that literally changed my life. I don't know anybody that's doing that kind of work, even in TV commercials. Um, if you're working for if you're working as a composer and you're working through a music house, which you know, I was signed to a music house uh, called Machine Head. I worked uh, in New York in Elias. Uh, I've worked as a freelance composer through music houses as well as, you know, staff composer. If these days, if you're a, um, a freelancer and you're working through a music house, you're not going to, you're, you're going to make maybe three to five grand a final spot mm-hmm. where, you know, the, the the way that they, they pay out, the way things are hardly union anymore. There's hardly any commercial work that's AFM or SAG, which when I was, you know, with Machine Head, everything we were doing was AFM or SAG. If I sang on something, I got SAG. If I played guitar and bass, or I got AFM. Um, the industry has just really changed. So making a living, you have to have something to hopefully feed you if, you know, you come here not knowing anybody, you could still, there's still great gigs out there. Uh, they're just, it seems like it's more challenging to get them. The relationship is key. Um, so I, it's all a gamble, but I mean, you know, what's our other alternative?